Welcome to Policy Matters. My name is Matt Dixon. And I'm Franz Bouchard. And today we're joined by Arno Chevalier, Professor of Economics at Royal Holloway University of London. Arno is a Labour economist and his work focuses primarily on issues related to education, the family and health. Welcome, Arno. Hey, welcome. Thanks for having me here. <laughs> oh, thanks for coming, Arno. Thank you very much. Um, so, Arno, uh, in the show, we've been talking to a, a variety of people from all sorts of backgrounds. Uh, it does feel like recently we are <laughs> heading back squarely towards economists, especially labor economists. You would consider yourself as a labor economist, but you've also worked in other fields and contributed to other fields. How would you describe yourself? I would have said labor economists, um, but labor economists are a bit hegemonic and then start doing a lot of things that are quite far away from traditional labor. So as you say, I do work on health, education, um, at the moment, I'm mostly doing work on crime. So, yeah, pretty broad interest in applied micro. Yeah, I mean, these are all the kind of topics that we have discussed in specific shows over the last two years. So it does seem to me about that labor economists are some of the best type of economists. Yeah, I mean, I, I would definitely agree with that. Yeah. Uh, but I think you're right, Anna, that um Something about, I don't know if this is true of other kind of sub-fields within economics, but labor economists seem to have uh, uh, branched out to... Uh, other other fields so whether it's crime health sports even so uh, a lot of the people you talk to would say oh yeah i'm a labor economist but i'm working on you know economics of, of crime or something like that yeah so i think that may have to do a bit with uh, kind of the push for finding causal causality uh, which was maybe stronger in the labor field or at least earlier on and then basically labor economists have started applying those same tools to various other topics. And possibly uh, just thinking about it because as we're interested in policy matters right we think uh, government policy matters and I suppose economists were involved quite a lot with formulating policies thinking about like labor market policies to get people back into employment and and that sort of thing so there you really need to know the causal effect because that it's not just certain people go on the training program and they do well uh, but it's because they're a certain type of person so actually i think you're right labor economists have been at the forefront of kind of identifying the the causal effects yes and i guess that's partly what we are going to discuss today is take care most of, most of the papers are going to be okay. What can we learn from, from that? Absolutely. <laughs> so, Arno, um, let's talk a bit about your papers. You've got quite a lot of them. Uh, a few of them are about something called the educational production function. Um, I guess before we continue, can you explain to our listeners what that might be? So, here what we have in mind is how children or young adults end up having the grade that they have. And there are various factors that affect those things. So there are some innate characteristics of, of the child, maybe some kind of measures of, of intelligence, how diligent the child is doing his homework. There are also some factors that come from the parents, so how much do they invest in the child, how much do they care, how much they care. Um, read books with them, all that kind of stuff. Books, how much children there is in the household, how rich the parents are, where do they live. Mm. Uh, and then there are factors that belong to the school environment, or, and then that's kind of the quality of the teachers, the peers that the kid is interacting with. So if you take all those factors in mind, all, each one of them is affecting how well the kid ends up doing, uh, and basically they are all factor of the production of that final grade. Of that, of that education. And that's obviously this is a big literature. There's a vast amount of papers being written, a lot of stuff about schooling, for example, you know, teacher-pupil ratio, etc., etc., etc. But you have a very interesting paper uh, where you use one of these sort of what we call natural experiments in East Germany and the fall of the Berlin Wall. And in particular, there's this very marked drop in fertility. I had a look at the paper and it looks like that literally the the amount of births half in East Germany after the fall of the Berlin Wall. So can you tell us a little bit more about that and how you link that then to the educational production function? Yeah, so you're right. Uh, just after the fall of the Berlin Wall, and it starts almost exactly nine months after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the birth rate in East Germany drops. And for the next three, four years, it's about 50% lower than, than normal, and then but, slightly recover. So that is, you know, looking at the graph, that is a massive drop, right? This isn't just a sort of year-by-year -year variation. It's this the is... biggest drop 
in peacetime ever seen anywhere in the world. Wow. Uh, and it's even larger than the drop that Germany had at the end of the Second World War. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's so, quite unprecedented, but it's not completely unusual. So most of the countries, uh, Eastern European countries, when they transited from communism, had quite large drops in their fertility. It's amazing, I think, looking at your paper, the timing of it, that it is almost exactly, you know, to the day, nine months later from uh, from the fall of the wall, you start to see that the fertility rate just, fertility rate just drops like crazy. And it's one of those, I mean, we've talked about quite often, we talk to economists about things that we would not necessarily think of as being anything to do with economics. When you think about people deciding to have a baby, you don't, I suppose we think of a lot more romantic things and, you know, uh, people aren't looking at their bank balance and what the stock market is doing. But actually, this is something where you find that when people are a bit uncertain about the economy or if the economy is in a recession, birth rates fall. So people obviously do factor that into their decision making. Yes. So that's kind of the insight from Baker in the, in the 60s about how an economist can think about fertility decisions is that children are costly. And they are costly in two dimensions. They are costly in financially. You need to provide a lot of goods for them. And they're also costly in terms of time. Parents may have to reduce how much they work in order to care for the kid. And source costs vary differently around the business cycle. So when the economy is doing well, parents are typically richer. They are more likely to be in a job, and those jobs pay a bit more. So they are typically richer. So that may push them towards, oh, I can now afford a child. However, it's also more expensive to take time off the labor market at that point. Um, so the, uh, theoretically, the effect is, is ambiguous. Uh, as you say, empirically, it has been found that usually the fertility rate is procyclical. And what we were interested in is that, okay, maybe that's true on average, that it's procyclical, but maybe some type of parents have different type of preferences and some react more to the change in income and or others more, more to the, what we call the substitution rate, the fact that taking time away from the labor market has now become more expensive. And, and when, I can't remember how we, we discover that big drop in fertility in East Germany, but when we look at it, the first thing that we had in mind was not looking at education, but was looking at crime. So what we had in mind was that Donu and the Levitt paper, which is really controversial, but yes. also very famous, which is yeah. about how abortion laws introduced in the 70s in the US led to a reduction in crime in the 90s. And the argument here is that basically kids that would have had parents that would not have been very good at parenting basically ended up being aborted and not born. And if they had not been aborted, they would have been more likely to commit crime. So it, it's in the Donovan and Levitt paper, it's a question about parental selection, that not all parents are very good at parenting. Yeah, I hear that. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I also have kids. I'm not sure I'm super good at parenting always. <laughs> Try my best. Um, so that's kind of where we started. And then, of course, you think, well, parents do, as you say, invest in their child in a lot of dimensions. So it, it could also be interesting to look at education. So, so this is very interesting because when I, bef before I read the paper and I just looked at the question, my initial assumption would have been, okay, great, less kids, Therefore, there'll be less kids in the classroom competing for that valuable teacher time, teacher space, etc., etc. And the amount of resources poured into East Germany, of course, after the fall of the war was quite substantial. Lots of big internal transfer of money from the West to the East. So actually, my original thinking was these kids were going to do quite good. That was also part of original thinking that, uh, yes, those kids got more public provision in them because, as you say, the classrooms were smaller. Uh, if you if you if the cohort size drops by fifty percent, it's not that they close fifty percent of the school, so they they reduce a little bit the amount of teachers, but typically the classrooms uh, were uh, less crowded than than before. So that should push them to have better outcomes. Also, when they look for a job, there is less people of the same age looking for a job at the same time, so they should be more likely to find a job. With the caveat that, of course, quite a few of the jobs had disappeared as well. I mean, even so, we are looking at outcomes like 15 to 20 years after the, the fall of the wall. East Germany is still not doing as well as, as West Germany. But what we were interested in is, yeah, is there some parental selection? So who are the parents who decide to give birth when basically the world as they know it is just, has just collapsed and now they are facing a lot of uncertainty? So as you say, the, 
the economy, um, a lot of jobs are disappearing, but there are also transfer coming in. So it's not that they are poorer, but there is a lot of uncertainty. And they also moved from a communist world where basically everything was planned from birth to until you died. Parents didn't have to worry about the education of their kids. They didn't have to worry about finding a job for their kids. All of those things were more or less planned. I can tell you as somebody who pays for childcare now, my mother, who is from East Germany, does tell me <laughs> it was free. <laughs> free, free nurse, free, free childcare. Exactly. So is that better provision than in West Germany? They had uh, almost universal provision of childcare that was free. Um, so they, they, they move from that world to a world where they can just see how it is for West Germany, where there is a shortage. At, th at that point, there is quite a dramatic shortage of nursery places, and it's quite expensive if you have to go through the private sector. So you may think, if they are forward-looking, it may be the better of parents, the ones that can afford childcare, who will say, okay, well, let's have a child now, the, a better world is opening for our kids, let's, let's enjoy the opportunity. Or it could be parents who are not very forward-looking and don't take any of those things into consideration and keep um, their decisions to have kids exactly the same as before. Um, so that's quite a, what kind of our question of interest. And of course, it's difficult to know the type of parents. So one way of looking at it is looking and going back to that education production function is how well are those kids doing? Um, so we got several uh, data sets which contain results of test scores for kids who are in the same cohort. So they are basically in the same school but we are conceived before or after the fall of the wall. So here it's, it's conception because kids who are born just after the fall of the wall could have been conceived uh, before parents knew things were changing. So what's important is to look at conception time. So so, so that have been conceived after the fall of the wall. Mm -hmm. So that's basically the kids that are born in August 1990. Uh, and we compare them to kids who are born just before. And what you find is that those kids in the same schools are doing worse quite substantially worse. Um, so this is, again, as Franz mentioned, this is like, as we've talked about before, a natural experiment. So you've got a situation there where it almost is like a random trial where the kid's born just before the fall of the wall are a certain, a certain group, and then the kid's born just after are a different group, but the school's the same, the other kind of, all the kind of environment uh, is the same in terms of lots of those kind of inputs into the production. It's just who the parents are is going to be potentially be different for the reasons that you described earlier. Exactly. So we are looking at test scores when the kids are between 10 and 16. So quite a long time after the fall of the wall. Because you could be concerned in, if you were just looking at the immediate effect that you know there's lots of things changing. Maybe the teachers are also not as good or behaving differently. So here we are looking at kids that have faced pretty much the same environment throughout their childhood, uh, but were conceived before or after the fall of the wall. Uh, and then when we dig deeper into those data, we have some uh, measures of what parents do with their children. Um, so what you find is that those parents who gave birth after the fall of the wall are less likely to interact with the teacher, less likely to read with their kids, have less books at home. So all of those factors that we know are affecting the education production function. So kind of what happened, what you're saying is that is there was this big sort of macroeconomic shock and a lot of the parents who let's say, would have put more effort into their, their children, decided not to have children. They kind of dropped out of the equation. What you're left with is, is the other parents, in quotation marks. <laughs> so that's one way of interpreting it. The other way would be that parents who had young kids just after the fall of the wall, it was so stressful that they ended up not being very good at parenting. So we could be co still concerned that it's not a selection effect, but it's a timing effect, that giving birth at that time was really just a bad idea. Um, so to distinguish between the two, we also look at older siblings of those, of those kids who are born just after the fall of the wall. Um, and what we find is that those older siblings also have tend to have worse outcome and that their parents were also investing less in those older siblings. So it doesn't seem to be a timing effect, but more kind of a parenting type effect. So it's, it's consistent with the selection of parents. Parents who were less good at parenting didn't change their behavior as much as the parents who are good at parenting. So I guess from a, a policy point of view, thinking about it, that as Fran said before, you know, if we suddenly have, we know that each year to year we have different size cohorts and this sort of thing. And you might think, okay, well, if it's a smaller cohort, oh, this is great. They're going to have more investment effectively because there's a smaller class size or whatever. But actually what's quite important then is the composition of, of the cohort and thinking about, I mean, it's quite difficult to think though. I mean, how would we 
spot oh this is you know this is a terrible group of parents let's right. help out yeah i mean <laughs> so it's a i think you you got exactly to to where we are in our conclusion that the policy should indeed to try to level the the, the playing field uh so currently what policy planners tend to do is that when a cohort is small, they invest a bit less because then they say, well, that, that cohort per capita gets the same amount as other cohorts. So they don't, they don't take into account differences in cohort quality that come from that parental selection. And while we could hope that they could do that, it's, it's rather difficult to figure out who are going to be the good parents uh, without being very intrusive about uh, what you're checking about what people do in their household. Um, so it's quite difficult to find the appropriate policy here. But what's, what's interesting is that in all results, basically the, the effect that you find on the test scores at age 15 and 16 are very similar to the effects that uh, have been found in the US on policies that uh, inv- provide good quality childcare to poor kids. Okay, so... Putting those two kind of uh, sets of results together, we might say, okay, uh, provision of good quality childcare to parents who are uh, low income, perhaps less well educated, could be a kind of preemptive policy. We can't go into the household and see what their kind of emotional attachment with the children is like and that sort of thing, but we can look at harder measures of uh, income, for example, and what benefits people receive. And if we can make the kind of quality of childcare available uh, a bit better, that could potentially do what we want to do to try and level the playing field a bit without having to be all kind of um, big brother nanny state looking into people's households and that sort of thing. So that would be one way. Uh, how to target which household should get it is, is a difficult question um, because being good at parenting is a little bit correlated with some observable characteristics, but not that much. Um so another policy would be to provide it to everybody, but then that becomes very, very costly. Yeah. And there is a large deadweight loss. And I think that's a, a thing that forever economists have been struggling with in terms of policy is, yeah, a universal policy, which, yeah, you end up spending money on people who don't need it. And then... I need it. I need childcare. Yeah, I mean, we all need it. We should just make that clear. Um, right now. But, yeah, but... But the alternative is trying to target. And how do you target? You know, it's very difficult to find the right measure to target on. Uh, and also the cost, obviously, you know, you start targeting and the, then all the administration costs go up of, of implementing the policy. So it's, it's, uh, it's not always straightforward. But I thought it was quite interesting that you had that finding in that paper using the, the East German data and the Berlin Wall. Because you've also looked at this in the UK context, looking at the kind of parental inputs into children's educational outcomes. I'm thinking of we've looked at um, parents' education and parents' income and how that impacts on child attainment in the UK and also whether people stay in school beyond the, the minimum point. And I think you found fairly similar results in that the kind of education of the parents matters for the children's education, right? Yes, I was uh, wondering which uh, which research you were asking me uh, about. So yeah, we do find that uh, parental education matters for the choice of the kids to carry on in in post compulsory education, and that the income effects are pretty small once you've accounted for parental education. So it's not that children who don't invest in their post compulsory education are financially constrained. It's usually mostly because of the on- environment they have had. Kind of uh, motivation, the aspiration. Could be motivation, of- information, mm. a role model, uh, which affects their decision to want to carry on in, in further education or not, so or in higher education. So that that's kind of good and bad in the sense that we know, okay, so giving people money at age 16 is probably not going to make that much of a difference to people staying on in education. But how how to tackle the kind of all these other things, the motivation, the aspiration, the role models, that kind of parental education, it's uh, that's a harder nut That's a harder nut to, to crack. crack. So there are a few papers that have been trying to, who have run experiment where they provide information about the benefits of going to higher education, but typically you find almost no effect there. So it doesn't affect the decision of young kids to, to go and invest in their higher education. So if you spend 15 years not thinking that you are going to go to university, 
providing information at the last moment is unlikely to make a big difference to their choice. You know, I was I was on holiday with my kids the other day in Flanders. I'm just going to go off on a tangent here, but I just wanted to throw <laughs> something in. And I was driving through all these very rural fields and I saw all these farms. And you know what I thought about? I thought, if I want to give up my job today and become a farmer, how do I do that? How do you become a farmer out of the blue? And then I was thinking about this and I thought about it's your pathway to becoming a farmer is very likely to be... Like muddy. What, like what? Yeah. Like muddy. <laughs> sorry, yeah, carry on. <laughs> Full of cows. That if you don't have a farmer yeah. in the family, yeah. it's, it's no. hard to so make So basically that. your parents have to be farmers. So, you know, I was thinking about the kind of intergenerational transmission mechanisms then thinking that actually farming is probably a kind of occupation where a lot of it is set by a reference point from, from, from your, your parents, right? And if you're not born into that, your pathway into literally like me quitting my job owning a farm and farming is probably going to be zero right now i'm not saying i'm good doing that but it was just a thought play i had and i think that kind of chimes with a little bit of the discussion we're having here that you know education and role models just are one of the drive it's, so you know it's beyond money really so yeah i think it's quite <laughs> quite a negative thought to think <laughs> that you know things are pretty much set in play and we can't shift anything but on the flip side the fact that parents and their education has such an impact on children's outcomes, there is a positive in that if you can actually shift people's outcomes, so uh, you give people some more education, then that should then have a, a spillover effect onto the next generation. So it's it's good and bad. You know, it's yeah. tough to actually do anything, but if you do, then there should be some kind of long term returns. Yeah, it's a multiplier effect. It's a multiplier. You, yeah. you treat the next generation as well. Exactly, and we um, get a whole several generations of busher farmers or something like that if you can just get friends into the farm then uh his whole he's gonna be able to eat for life well, the farming is probably the uh, the occupation that has the most kind of correlation between generations no i'm but, looking i'm gonna have a look at the, the next day i'm at the uh next time at, i'm at the office of national statistics but i uh, i think the future is definitely not on strawberry farming uh with brexit mm. uh, it's going to be somewhere else let I me don't know if you have some uh, robots who can pick the strawberries that, yeah. that would be okay <laughs> Let me let, let me continue and just a little bit more about this educational production function uh, because this is something that interests myself quite a bit. So uh, we're well, in fact, all of us, uh, the three of us, work in higher education. We do sometimes have to stand in front of students and teach them things. Um, and uh, you know, uh, teachers are part of the educational production function. So you've done some research into kind of students' incentives and kind of what works to 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 get them engaged in the classroom. Can you tell us a little bit about about that? Any tips and tricks from that myself? I will try, but I was in the classroom this morning and there was not many students in front of me <laughs> uh, because they had an exam later on and they were all cramming for the exam and kind of not showing up for the lecture. Oh. Uh, and that reminds me of a paper that I've done on procrastination of students. So so. We were interested in, uh, are some students be, uh, kind of performing badly because they start revising too late and by the time the exam happens, they just they didn't have time to cram everything in. Um, that was me. That was you. Uh, yeah, I'm also a, a bit last moment. <laughs> um, so we gave them a choice. We, uh, we gave them, um, basically, you could fix your, the deadline at which you will have to provide your essay. So it was an essay-based kind of stuff. So there was kind of the last possible time. And if you do it at that point, that's fine. But if you submit it earlier, you get a lottery ticket with a chance to win some some stuff. Uh, but you have to commit yourself to submitting it earlier. Um, so about 30% of the students kind of are aware of their procrastination or really wanted that lottery ticket. Anyway, they committed themselves to an earlier deadline, usually like a day before. I mean, not like a week before. We have a few who said a week, but most of them were a day before. Uh, but out of those, almost all of them broke their promise to submit earlier. <laughs> so they know that they have a problem with commitment. We try to incentivize them to commit to themselves to study earlier and do their stuff earlier, and they will broke their promises. Uh, so it's, I uh, hope they got zero marks for that. Uh, <laughs> breaking well, promises is not okay. <laughs> so they, got their, their, they had to return their lottery tickets for breaking oh, right. their promises. Fair enough. That's so, good. Uh, That's a good but they were not penalized in any other ways. Okay. Uh, so what we were concluding from that is that Students have a lot of difficulties to commit themselves 
for the long run. I mean, like it was like a month in advance. You know, it's not, <laughs> it's not even so much. And even committing yourself to submit an essay one day before was just too much of a commitment. And most of them ended up breaking their promises. Um, so that's one of the difficulties. The, the other kind of related work that we've done was about uh, trying to make sure that students, again, don't wait until the last moment, but work throughout the year. Mm. Uh, so here what we did, uh, we took two cohorts of students. So in the first year, we, we told them, you know, it will be good for you to revise every week. So we are going to put some online quizzes just to help you revise what we've covered this week. Do them. Uh, it will do you good. Um, well, if you just tell them that maybe 10, 15%, 20% max of students actually do the quizzes, if you just tell them it's for your own good, and they tend to be the better students. Um, so the second year, and that's kind of our treatment, we incentivize some of the weeks. So not every week, but some of the weeks, we told them in advance, if you do the quiz and you do well, you're going to get a book venture. If you do the quiz and whatever, you do at, at that quiz, you're going to get additional material to help you with the revisions. Or if you do the quiz, we will grade it and that will count towards your final grade. Well, okay. only the last thing matters. <laughs> <laughs> so if you do that, and we varied the price that we were giving them. So from very low to like, I think it was like from 2% to 4% of the final grade. So still not very large, but you get 90% of them doing the quiz. So uh -huh. even at a very low price, low reward, uh, they, they, they become much more engaged and do the quizzes. But I think that's really interesting because I'm, I remember as a young lecturer and going along to the um, training that we had to do in the University of Bath that give all young lecturers a, a kind of training course, you have to do a qualification in teaching. And someone told me on that that, listen, students, if you're designing a course and this kind of idea about like interim assessments and trying to encourage students to engage and work, that actually, yeah, if you try and incentivize them with with money, it's got a kind of low impact, right? So vouchers or whatever. But the currency they care about is marks. And so you put anything with a link to marks, even if it's just, yeah, 4% of your final grade, 5%. As long 5%, as it's positive, it's fine. As long as it's above zero, they will engage with it. And actually, again, it's one of those things where we think, is this economics? You know, um, this is about students in a classroom. and But actually... It's the same behavior that we see and that we're always analyzing in economics as how people make decisions, how people behave in response to incentives. And in this case, the incentive is you can get some marks towards your final grade. It's not all going to be on the exam. You can get some marks on the board before you go and sit in that kind of stressful, high stakes situation. And they they responded. So I'm really I was really interested to read your work to find that actually, yeah, this this is replicated in you know, other places. Yeah, yeah. So the, uh, I guess, concerning part is that they are not intrinsically motivated by their studies. But I guess we are atypical that we ended up turning into academics. So we probably had quite a lot of intrinsic motivations and we shouldn't expect all students to have such level of motivation. Avoiding the labor market was my motivation. <laughs> uh, yeah. Don't get a real job. <laughs> I, may, I may fall into the same <laughs> thing here. Um and uh, and then, yes, yeah, so providing some uh, currencies that they are interested in here, grades, uh, is one way to get them to put but more effort. Thing, I mean, I, is that because I'm thinking, I can't remember right now whether any of the courses in my university actually implement such a system. Uh, and I mean, is that the case for you, Matt? I think I never implemented it. It's definitely implemented in some courses because okay. uh, I remember trying to find out, like, because can I do this? shift now in, in my institution and other institutions too in terms of bringing the whole teaching experience more online, recording our lectures, putting that online, which of course means that students don't even turn up because they think they can just watch it, uh, you know, why bother getting up at nine? I'll just watch it at four in the afternoon, which of course they don't, but that's what they think. Watch uh, the highlights, well, real. They <laughs> procrastinate and then they end up uh, waiting until the, the last moment and then don't see the, the, the last part of the lecture when you're actually giving the, what's but going that, to be at the exam. Part of this, though, might be part of, you know, it's our problem to design something where doesn't where the students aren't incentivized because, you know, thinking about the way students behave and people behave, they respond to the incentives. And if we set an exam... That they just they need to know all the information for the exam for one day, and that is the day that they sit the exam, right? And so, in some ways, it is rational behaviour of students to cram as long as they get their timings right and start early enough. Then, 
if you cram for the day before and then you sit the exam and you just come out with all the answers and then the next day if you forget it all i mean that's lucky jim have you ever read that book lucky jim no. lucky jim he's a guy who basically cram it all for the exam as a fantastic grade get a job in oxford or cambridge and then forget everything so then after that he's a complete loser for the rest of his life okay so the cautionary tale there but it might be i suppose it depends what people want to go on to do so for some students who are like i just need to get this degree and then i'm going to go off and i'm going i'm going to the city and you know i've got a degree in history but i'm going to go to the city and i'm not actually going to use the the kind of human capital per se that i've gained in the degree i just need the credential So I guess this I mean I know you've done work on uh, signaling versus human capital and 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 in 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 education does it matter what you actually learn or is it just to get that credential to be able to take to the job market so for some students it probably is just getting the credential it could well be the optimal strategy just to get the credential but even that also depends on the cost so if you think that doing a little bit of work every week actually reduces the cost of learning all the material They, will, they may still be better of doing a little bit of work every week. So in fact, we, when we incentivize our quizzes, what we also found is that they did better at the final exam. So that's really key because that is, uh, that's really important for students to know that actually they may think their optimal strategy is, is what I outlined. But um, in fact, learning that kind of little and often every week, if that gets you a better grade at the end of the day, then uh, that's probably the better strategy. They've got to factor it all in, I suppose. Yes, so we, we don't have the full kind of information about how they ended up doing better at the exam. So is it because they did a little bit of work every week or is it because then they, they made the cramming more efficient at the end or they put more effort all together? Uh, that's still a bit of a black box. But yeah, so there's still lots of things about the production function that we don't understand. So that, that paper was based on your research in a... Uh, london-based university that is not named in the paper but um we might be able to take a stab at where it, what it is and you have another paper that also has some data from a london-based university that is that's not named in the paper um a very good university uh so uh that one is is looking at another input into the kind of education production and that is the peer group uh of your group that you're being taught in so your peers and their English language skills so it's really it's very relevant for kind of broader policy thinking about migration and uh, people coming to university in the UK but also obviously people come to work uh, so broader implications and looking at the proportion of students who are non-English speakers uh, and how that affects uh, the results of both the migrant students and the native students and it's quite a big lot it's like one in five UK Our education students, I think, is from overseas, and so it's a big group. Um, but you had a look at how that affects the outcomes for the students in those classes. So, uh, as as you say, the, the UK is one of the countries that attract most international students after the US. So there is a, a large fraction of international students in the classrooms in higher education, and and one of the concern is that maybe the fact that they don't speak as well English as Other native students uh, slows the amount of material that can be covered in the lectures and has a detrimental effect on the education of of the native speakers. Uh, so there's been some work that has been done on those uh, on those issues in uh, looking in in schools and not so much in higher education, but. Typically, what you find is that there's not much of an effect, or maybe a slight negative effect, on the performance of the natives of the share of uh, non-native speakers in the classroom. So so what we wanted to to do in that paper is to extend a bit that kind of research question, but also look at the, the block of non-native speakers and how heterogeneous that block is. And the idea was that uh, it comes back to those models of integration that Lazia wrote uh, a little while ago about uh, how you integrate as, as a migrant. And, and here the idea is that if in the classroom you have a lot of people who speak your own foreign language, your incentive to learn English are decreased because you can always learn with those guys, speak with those guys. You don't have to invest as much into learning English. Um, so we wanted to see whether the composition of the 
non-native speaker groups affect the performance of all the kids in that group. So, as you say, we, we look at uh, an institution that cannot be named and uh, students who are in different seminars where the composition of the groups varies. So the share of non-native speakers vary, but also within those non-native speakers, kind of the, the number of languages that are represented in that group. What do you and find? what we find is that the share doesn't matter. So as in the rest of the literature, we find that native students are not affected by how many non-native speakers there are in the classroom. Non-native speakers are also not affected by uh, how many non-native speakers there are in the classroom, but they are affected by how diverse the group is. And for them, the more diverse the group is, the better it is in terms of grades. So they perform better if the non-native speakers group is more heterogeneous. So what you don't want is to create ghettos mm. of some kind of language-specific group. That's interesting because traditionally in the UK, if you look at the overseas students, there's been this big influx of particular diaspora coming from particular countries into the UK HE sector. So you used to have a lot of Greeks used to come, uh, Indians, Chinese now, although I think that's declining again. So there are, although it's very diverse and there's many nationalities within UK HE student population, actually some nationalities dominate others. So there might be an incentive there for universities just to look a little bit closer how they allocate these students to different classes. Uh, yes, exactly. So what you want is uh, to make the group as diverse as possible. And, and then we did a survey along those classrooms to see to look at the interactions between students. And what we find is that in groups that were more linguistically diverse, uh, for non-native speaker students, we are more likely to speak with an English friend, so an English peer. So they... What we, what we took from that is that uh, basically their level of English uh, improved and their incentive to speak English were, were increased because you had, no, no, you had less people from your own language to speak with. Um, and then we did some various tests. So as long as you have one person speaking your own language, that's detrimental to your score. So as okay. a, as a, as a non-native speaker, what you want, what the ideal situ situation is that there is nobody speaking your own language, <laughs> uh, which will be pretty difficult to achieve. Yes, yes. But, um, it's interesting because it does have, uh, as you say, friends, it has implications for education, for people assigning students to classes and thinking that actually if we mix up the language groups, that's having no negative effects on anyone, but it could have positive effects. So it could, you know, overall increase increase welfare. Um, but for the labour market as well, if you think about housing and, and urban planning and just when people come as migrant workers, uh, whether the same effects could possibly work more broadly uh, in society. So if you, again, yeah, you want to avoid kind of ghettos where people will just group together and then potentially not integrate so much. So I think it's another example where we have uh, something that's quite seems very narrowly focused on education and economics of education, but potentially has a kind of wider application to migration. Yes, so uh, I guess yeah, the economics of education has the advantage that you are, you can observe quite closely students and so in some cases you can manipulate things uh, without being too invasive. And then when you look at the broader world, it's much more difficult to do those things. But if we think that some of the results transport to the broader world, and uh, it's still an, an important kind of lab laboratory where you can test some ideas. So you can yeah, mess about <laughs> in, in the university and assign students in different ways and, and uh, actually get some real-life applications. Yes, as long as you promise the university that uh, you're not penalizing anybody. Yeah. And it's um, all ethically approved by the university. Of course, that's, yes. That's, that's uh, but there is, some other there is another university whose data has been also well-used to analyze students' behavior, which has exactly the, that policy of splitting students. So they have a, a large group of non-native speakers and, and they say that they randomize students, but they, they, they randomize, it's a stratified randomization. Uh, right. So they, they, they make sure that there's not too many of those non-native speakers in one group. So there are, there are some universities seems to be aware that it's better to, to split that's, your oh, students as much as you can. And that's impact for you, I think. You well, they did that before I did my research. Oh, uh, don't, don't I cannot say, claim impact there. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, let's see, let's see. Let, let's see what it will still get any international students um, after Brexit. Um, <laughs> going uh, to our next question, uh, just sort of capping off this whole educational production function, I mean, Matt and I 
and you, of course, as well, we've all done a lot of work in kind of the returns to education. So, you know, you, you're getting an education, and then the big question is, what do you get out of it? What's what's the return? And um, we've talked about this quite a bit, about some of the recent work that we're doing. But you've also done work on this, uh, specifically about educational quality of, well, quality of higher education institutions, and that there seems to be quite, let's call it differential returns there. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about that? A little bit. Uh, first, I'm very jealous of the data that you're using for your own work. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so, the, so the data I have is is not as rich in a lot of dimensions, uh, but maybe richer in, in a few others. So, so I'm using survey data of uh, students quite early after their their graduation, and and the measure of quality that we have are basically things that uh, are publicly available. So that's very similar to what you get in league tables published by various journals. So. Mm. How well they actually measure quality is maybe debatable. This would be like the Guardian University League table exactly. or whatever. Exactly, so it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's exactly the same kind of metrics. Um, and the difficult question is that, of course, students are not randomly allocated to universities. So the, the students that end up going to universities that are classified as high quality are typically students that have high wage potential. They have, they have good grades. Uh, they may come from different type of background. Uh, so the difficulty is if you compare earnings of students that went to different type of universities, what are you comparing? Is it the effect of the university or the effect of the, their own characteristics? So, so in, that, in that paper, what we did was to uh, basically try to, looking at those observable characteristics, try to compare students that look very, very similar, but end up going to universities that have different quality. Uh, and what we find is that quality matters in terms of uh, future wages. Okay, uh, that's good from a higher education perspective. We feel like, okay, all the stuff we're doing to try and get ourselves up league tables and to show our uh, mm-hmm. quality, uh, that's important if it matters. Yeah. And it matters a lot if you go toward the top. So basically in the bottom half, it doesn't really matter if you climb a few a few points in, in the quality league. That doesn't really uh, saying, do, do so much. Option Cambridge off, off their throne. <laughs> yeah, that's that's where. It... Uh, so um, yeah, here we don't have enough observations to do those kind of things. There are some evidence in the US that looks at basically going to the Ivy League versus going to a, a good but not Ivy League college, where you also find very large financial returns to do that. So yeah, it seems that the returns to quality are very high at the top. Let me ask a sort of a broader question here because I was invited by some I can't remember the name now at King's King's College uh, to talk to some people who are doing arts. <laughs> They're doing arts. They made a big impression <laughs> on you. <laughs> no, no, they were super nice, but they have a really complicated acronym and I can't remember it now. Yeah, yeah anyway, and, and they were very much talking about the, 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 the art sciences. And of course, uh, some of the work we've done there, they're a bit, well, I don't want to say unpleased, but you know, they're, they're trying to interpret it. The return to uh, an arts degree is low. It's financial been like that returns, for, yes. yes, the financial returns. It's been like that. I mean, it's, that's not news, you know. My parents knew this 30 years ago. So, um, uh, But they're now trying to grapple with this, with this in this new world where a lot of the policy debates about value for money for a degree. Degrees are very expensive. They consume a lot of government resources, more than secondary, primary, or early schooling. And... Um, more. There was an interesting person presenting some uh, uh, kind of uh, context, um, uh, uh, sort of um, an analysis of just the words, a word analysis of policy papers and how often they mention value for money. And really, since the late nineties, it's kind of the idea of value for money has exploded in kind of white papers and any kind of policy papers relating to universities. So I guess my question to you is here: this was a more general question. I mean, quality matters, yes. Degree type matters, but you know, should we? What do you think of this value for money debate? Um, yeah, there are lots of factors that will affect the wages that graduates are going to get, which are completely independent of which universities they go to. Uh, so, if you base um, decisions to finance higher education solely on how well the graduates are doing, it's not clear that you will always make the what we could say maybe the optimal uh, decisions where where the regarding your your investment. Um, so clearly, as you say, degrees are expensive for the individuals and for for the states. So there should be probably some concern about the returns to to degree. Uh, whether that should 
affect where people graduate uh, and how much they pay for their degrees is a slightly different question, which I'm not sure I, uh, I'm super competent in answering. Uh, but that's a, that's a very uh, kind of hot topical question. That's a, kind of the big policy issue is how should we finance higher education? That is something we have, we have talked about before, and I think we'll probably talk about again. But just right now, we want to um, ask about one more thing uh, that you've worked on. And again, coming back to this idea that labor economists are taking over all sorts of different disciplines and thinking about health. Obviously, at the moment, in the kind of start of 2020, there's this whole uh, coronavirus issue of, of outbreak around uh, the world. And obviously, lots of concern about that. And they're talking about, oh, we're going to develop a vaccine and, and this sort of thing, which I'm sure they, you know, they will do. Um, but you've done some work in health economics looking at the controversy around the MMR vaccine, the mumps, measles and rubella uh, vaccine, and how back in the late 90s, there was some, 1998, yeah, um, there was some research published in The Lancet saying, oh, there's this potential link between uh, MMR vaccine and autism and other kind of um, negative health outcomes and this had like dramatic effects on uptake of the MMR vaccine and uh, you found some interesting findings about kind of education of parents and how that affected response and, and that sort of thing just thinking in this current kind of panic slight well maybe panic's too strong but slight kind of concern around uh, all things virus um, uh, yeah can you just tell us about that paper and what you found so, so typically how economists think about health decisions is that education is one of the factors that affects health decisions and typically affects positively. So more educated people tend to be in better health, either because they are better at generating health or they're also better at understanding when they are not in good health and, and get help sooner and they are better able at taking the treatment. There are various reasons to think that education is going to be correlated with health. And, um, and one of the... One of the reasons is that maybe they are better at processing information regarding health that is provided in the media. Uh, so what we know is that in 1998, Dr. Wakefield published that paper in The Lancet showing that potentially there was a link between vaccinating your child for MMR and that child developing autism. Um, and there was a lot of controversies about those results. Uh, so for four or five years, there was a regular occurrence in the newspapers of information about MMR, whether it was true that it was causing autism or whether it was not true. Um, Can we just say, what is the current state of the paper? It has been withdrawn, right? The paper has been it's withdrawn. not true for any listeners. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, Dr. Wakefield, I believe, is, was uh, discredited, yeah, went to America. Uh, moved to America, but then kind of uh, managed to create a network of people who kind of perpetuate that uh, information that maybe vaccinating your child is bad for your child. So the, the, there's still regular occurrence in the newspapers of that uh, myth that vaccination is bad, uh, potentially bad. Uh, but during that period, 98 to 2004, there was really a lot of information about MMR and journalists tried to be uh, presenting the pros and the cons. So it's not always completely clear which side is, is a true one, uh, are telling the truth, even at that time, even if they knew or didn't know. So journalists tried to be balanced, which makes it difficult for people to understand what is the actual truth. Uh, and what we find is that the Areas in the country that drop their fertility rate the quickest were the areas that were the most educated. Uh, vaccination rate. Vaccination yeah, rate, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Uh, so they are basically the, the more educated parents were processing that information that vaccination was maybe potentially dangerous and they were the first to uh, reduce their vaccination rate. Um, and then as the information got discredited, they kind of slowly recovered. And then that recovery is faster than in areas of the countries which are less educated. So, so that's quite interesting because my initial, again, my initial assumption would have been that, you know, parents who are more educated would be less likely to to go with that myth, right, and continue with the vaccination. But this is kind of a sort of bizarre reverse thing where actually being more educated and able to take up this information, but because the result was the wrong result, led a lot of educated parents to go down the wrong path, essentially. Right. And, and, exactly. And At the time, they thought they were making the right decision. They were better informed. 
uh, just that the information that they got was the wrong one. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's also clear in epidemiology is that as a disease gets eradicated, people tend to forget about how dangerous that disease is. So there's also, oh yeah, there's also all sorts of talks about measles is not that dangerous. I mean, yeah, you have fever and you're a bit ill. Well, measles kills. <laughs> it's just that there's so few occurrence of it now that most people have forgotten that measles is a killer. Uh, so then they take the risk of vaccination versus a disease where they think, oh, anyway, that disease is just not that important. And then they may over, overstate the risk of vaccination and take the decisions not to vaccinate their child. So that's, that's a concern that happens when diseases become very rare, that people forget how dangerous those diseases are and then stop taking the preventive measures. I think um, there's implications as well, think about it for some prevention of diseases and information, how we communicate this, because often we think, oh, there's these health inequalities and if people, if, if there was more information out there, then people would respond and, and protect themselves or, or whatever. But actually your results kind of suggest, well, it's the more educated uh, who will take up the information and we often think about these uh, inequalities between more and less educated parents and what they do for their children and actually here it would kind of imply that there might be unintended consequences when we try and intervene give more information about a particular um, condition or disease and then it will be the the educated who will take up the information and act on it and actually we can end up making things health inequalities worse even if we're making kind of some of the outcome better. So I guess it really depends how you provide the information. So here, basically, the information was provided in a very unstructured way by journalists informing the debate about how MMR was uh, potentially related to autism. It was not a kind of a plan, a release of information by the NHS asking people how to, to make decisions. And I think that that issue of you've got journalists and they're trying to put some balance and so they don't kind of take into account the weight of evidence i mean we could get back to talking about brexit <laughs> again back and, to that debate. and all that problem so i think that's probably a good point at which to leave uh leave the discussion yes and our final question to you is we ask it to everybody if we were to put you in charge of policy making we've chosen dwp for you but you might want to choose another ministry any preferences yeah, first I wanted to have the desert island question. Uh, have a disc that I could choose when I will be on a desert island. And, uh, so I was all prepared yeah, sure, for that. You can tell yeah, us. You can tell us. My wife tells Bob me, Marley. don't embarrass me. <laughs> no, so I won't embarrass her. Uh, could I get DFE instead of DFE? DFE? Yeah, 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 let's go, go with DFE. So Department for Education. Yeah. I don't um, know. Who's, who's the current minister of that? I'm, I'm Gavin Williamson. Oh, Gavin, Gavin Williamson. Williamson. Oh, yeah. right. And okay. then for higher education. Uh, it's, uh, it's Michelle Donnellan, Donnellan new, exactly. new minister. So exactly. you've got both their jobs. What you gonna do? Um, Two minutes. Access to higher education. So, at the moment, I think we kind of hope or put pressure on universities to try to make sure that everybody can get access to higher education. And it feels like you are waiting until the last moment to try to solve a lot of problems that have appeared since basically the, the child is born. So, for, from from day one of their birth, they are living in a very uh, Tilted playing field. Uh, and then at the age of 18, you expect universities to try to balance things. So I will probably try to put more money into early interventions, early childhood. Free nurseries. Free nurseries, uh, rather than hope that at the end, something can sort it so that uh, there is equal access for everybody. Excellent. Good plan. Thanks, Arno. Great to talk to you. Thanks for having me around. <laughs> You've been listening to Policy Matters. My name is Franz Buscher. And I'm Matt Dixon. And we'll be back soon with more.